0: Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. I'm your host, Eric Navaretti. Each episode, I sit down with the writers, producers, directors behind the modern era of horror and explore their inspirations, setbacks, and what it really takes to make your favorite films. Today, I'm interviewing Hollywood screenwriter Zach Olkowicz. He's attached to several high-profile projects at studios throughout town, like Dimension, Fox Searchlight, and Warner Brothers, as well as two projects with horror superstar... James Wan. Zach came over the hill to Automaton Creative's office in Studio City to give us an insider's look at what it's like being a working writer in Hollywood in 2017. Today I have, at the point of a knife, Zach Olkowitz. I'd like to know just a little bit more about you and your background. How did you get started in this? I believe you were originally doing some script coverage and then it kind of spiraled
1: out from there. Yeah. Um, you know, if I, if you go back farther, which I feel like plays in more into what I do now, I actually went to school for video game design that's kind of where I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, kind of from there came up here and, and I always kind of wanted to write and originally I wanted to write for video games, but uh, my dad was an actor. So I always kind of like grew up on sets and grew up kind of like reading scripts and stuff like that. So I feel like it was pretty natural for me to come up here and want to kind of like segue into that, which was really cool. And yeah, so I, I got a job at an internship up here doing script coverage. It was developmental so it's pretty much like people in Iowa who would send me their script and be like, please tell me what I can do to fix this. And I'd have to send them back notes and pretend that they were going to come over here from Iowa and, and have a career, which sounds really mean, but 98% of people were, were not probably going to make it. I think it helps a lot like going into a career as a writer because you know you, you read a lot of stuff and you and you interact with a lot of people who are really tough on notes and don't want to kinda of like do your suggestions, even though you're like somebody getting paid ten dollars an hour <laughs> to like read scripts in a basement practically and I think that that helped me a lot kind of to just be less precious with my stuff there's kind of an attitude I feel like coming into a lot of stuff where you are so excited about what you bring to the table and your own vision that you kind of forget that there's like you know 200 other people roughly that have to be also excited about that vision and have to also kind of want to to do it even for it like for a writer obviously like you know the director has to be excited about what you're doing and they're going to have their own ideas all the way down to you know the many many producers that are going to be on it all the way down to and I really believe this into like the makeup people or into like the actors, into like the craftspeople, the boom mic guy, like whoever it is, like I feel like you kind of have to come into it with an idea that everyone needs to be kind of excited about the project. And I think that doing coverage and starting out kind of in a way that, I got to see how many writers, like I said, just just like, you'd be like, I don't know, maybe the couch doesn't need to be blue in this scene. And they just push back and be like, I want a refund on my coverage because you dare suggested that my couch should not be, should not be blue. (laughs) But I think it comes from a real place of like, just wanting, you know, your art out there in the world and feeling like it's an attack on yourself. When in reality, it's just trying to sync up viewpoints and that happens, you know, professionally too. Where do you feel like the line is drawn then between... Obviously you want people to
0: feel involved, you want everyone to be excited about a project, but is there a point where you realize that somebody is not so much giving their input, but maybe they're just trying to override someone because they think their ideas have to go in and, and not so much anyone else's?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes you get the idea that, like, working with producers, like, they don't really know how to fix it, but they know they have to give you something because it's their job to give you something. So a lot of times you'll get notes that are like, you know, make the couch blue or something that doesn't really matter. But it's kind of, I think, the job of the writer to look through that and see what is actually bothering them. You know, if they're focusing on the couch, then maybe you need to, like, up the drama in that scene, you know, so that they're not even looking at the couch or they're not noticing the couch. Coming at it from a, from a, as a writer, as opposed to to a director. you know, I feel like directors tend to be a little more concrete in what their vision is, and I think that's really important for a director. I think it's almost kind of like more what producers look for when they go to directors. In a weird way, I've had experiences before with, with other directors, like friends of mine, that they've gone in and kind of been like, well, I feel really strongly about this, I don't care about this other stuff. And a lot of times the producers will tend to take that as like, well, he doesn't have a strong vision, which isn't necessarily true, but that can be true with directors. Whereas with writers, I feel like, it's almost the opposite. If you go in and you feel really strongly about like what something should be, you can kind of actually push producers away because they feel like you're not willing to work with them. When a lot of times, you know, when I've worked with people and I've gotten a note that I didn't like or a note that I didn't necessarily agree with, I've really found that if you, just talk to the person on the other end and kind of go, why do you think this or what is not working or, or I tried what you're suggesting and it didn't work. It's a really smart idea, but it didn't work. Here's why it didn't work and let's discuss it and find something else. They're always willing to kind of, you know, take a step back and try and figure out another solution that works. And I think it's just acknowledging like why everybody's there in the same way that you know, as a writer, I wouldn't necessarily tell a director to, you know, change the lens in the camera. You know, I wouldn't tell a producer what's a better location or a worse location or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of times, you know, I, I work with really great directors who won't necessarily tell me what to do and how, like character arcs and stuff like that. You know, things that are more my purview. But I think it's hard because I think that you have to, you have to hold on to what makes you really passionate about the thing while still being malleable enough that, you know, you're letting other people also have it be their thing. Because like I said, it's not just your movie. It's to be honest, (laughs) it's usually just the director's movie when you look at it, but (laughs) you know, it's also the writer's movie. It's also the producer's movie. It's also, you know, everyone kind of involved wants to have that kind of ownership. And I feel like that gets lost sometimes when you get people who are so used to kind of like clawing their way into trying to get something made that they don't want to let go of even the most minute detail and have it have it change. <laughs> and I think that the really, you know, the strong directors that I've worked with have a really great balance of, of being passionate while still, you know, kind of keeping their eye on what's important. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind for
0: any person, regardless of what your role is in the production, yeah. being able to accept maybe not even necessarily criticism, but notes, suggestions from people and being able to internalize that Because everyone wants the best product at the end of the day. They want the best story possible. And people will think of things that maybe you didn't think of because they have a different perspective or they have a different skill set. How were you able to better internalize receiving notes from people and realizing that those were suggestions that maybe you should listen to as opposed to this is an attack on my
1: writing or this is just a
0: a criticism for the sake of it? Because I I feel like that's a knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people will have.
1: I mean i still have it i came up with a rule really early on that i would never react to a note immediately you go you end up writing like a first draft and you go and you sit down and you have two three hours of a notes meeting no matter how good the script is it's the we love it but here's the 50 different things can it now be set in space and even if i i really vehemently disagree with it like I'll, i'll flag any concerns i have with it but i'll kind of be like okay that's interesting let me look at that and let's talk about it you know, tomorrow. Let me honestly look at it. And I try and do my best to honestly go home and complain to my wife and stamp my feet and flip a table or whatever I need to do uh, to get that frustration out. But then I try and look at it honestly and look at it and say, okay, is this better? Is it not better? Why is it not better? Or why is it better? And, And how can we move past that? The best producers that I've worked with don't necessarily give you specific suggestions as much as flag possible solutions, two problems that they have. The running joke is that every producer will always say this is the bad version and then they'll go into like whatever the cliche version is or whatever and and you're kind of not expected to take that. You're kind of expected to just go okay you don't know what it is but like this is what the problem is and we have to go kind of fix it now. I'm lucky enough that I've done two projects with uh, James Wan and he's one of the best people I feel like at giving notes because both projects whenever I would get notes from him they'd be really huge changes and then I'd go home and I'd look at them and I'd be like, I smarter than me. That sucks." <laughs> like, that's, that's really unfortunate. Like your version is so much better than the version I just spent the last three months on. And I think that's really exciting though. You know, I, I feel like you have to kind of take a step back and, and, and look at the project as a whole and go, is this making it better? And I feel like every DVD commentary on every DVD ever has, you know, all the stories about scenes that they loved that they had to cut and, you know, characters that they loved and, but ultimately it ends up building a stronger end product, which I think comes from people that are willing to listen to notes and willing to kind of step outside themselves You made a big splash with your
0: spec script for Ink and Bone and this was the winner of the Blood List back in twenty thirteen.
1: Yeah. It won the Blood List, it was on the blacklist, it was it was exciting. It was funny because it's actually a script that I wrote while waiting to get notes on another script and they were just taking too long. So I was like, I'll just write this other thing. And then that ended up preemptively selling to Dimension. You know, I went through a whole round of rewrites of them and they've attached to director Evan Doherty, who wrote uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. He's attached to direct and I, I have no idea. I hope it does well. <laughs> there's, there's a common problem with writers that it's usually up to the goodwill of the producer how much you hear about it after, you know, you, you sell a project. So I turned in my last rewrite and I don't think I've heard from Dimension since <laughs> which is kind of funny. But you know, I, I get I get updates from within Dimension, you know, just from friends I have working there and stuff like that that, you know, people are excited about it and Bob's excited about it and I, fingers crossed it gets made. <laughs> but then yeah, you know, from there I ended up selling a pitch to Fox Searchlight that was this project called Elimination that has Dan Stamm, uh, who's the guy who directed uh, Last Exorcism. Again, fingers crossed, is going into production. What else? I've got the two James Wan projects. It's hard because a lot of the projects I've been working on, I'm really, really lucky in that I've been able to work at really big studios. Like I've been able to go to Fox and I've got a project with Sony right now. The good thing about that is that you have these really big projects and you have like producers and it's exciting to like go to meetings with like a bunch of people and you know, James Wan's there and giving you notes and all that stuff. And it's bad because you usually can't tell anybody about any of it. People are very like um, the movie arrival that just came out Dan Cohen Who is the producer on my horror movie that I set up at Fox searchlight? I was around and working on my script when the script for arrival which used to be called story of your life leaked It was a huge deal like everyone was really upset and as soon as I uh, Started turning in drafts right after that I had to like make sure no one read it and there were like watermarks all over it and stuff like that just because people are So worried about I feel like people think it's it's ideas getting out, but it isn't really ideas It's more just like Anything that burns off some of the heat that they feel like a project will have tends to be received really negatively. With this project at Fox Searchlight, literally all I'm allowed to say is that it is an elevated home invasion movie. Anytime anyone asks me any questions after that, I'm just like, I mean, I could tell you over drinks, but like, (laughs) I can't tell you in any kind of official capacity. And I think that's a quality of the studio system and a quality of like everyone wants to make sure that they have things out there first before anybody else. I just worked on a big Fox franchise based on, on a book that I had to do a writer's room with Adam Wingard and uh, Jason Eisner was in there. It was awesome. It was a really, really, really fun room, but again, I can't tell anybody (laughs) (laughs) just, it's like this weird domino effect of like, I'm really hoping that in like two years seven movies of mine come out. (laughs) You know, finally be able to tell people uh, what I've been working on and why I'm excited about that kind of stuff. How do you keep that in your brain then, I guess, because you
0: have so many projects that are out there and that are, you know, being worked on, I guess, behind, Closed doors, but you tell your friends you're a writer, but they haven't come out yet. Does that frustrate you or do you just accept that as part of the process at this point or, or part of the job?
1: I feel like my friends they just don't ask. So it's more kind of like <laughs> they think I'm really, really successful and I'm like on set every day and like going to red carpet premieres every Sunday. I feel like it's it's more with people that you meet who aren't in the I mean, because also we live in LA, so it's like they kind of know that it's like, Oh, I've got these movies in production and they, they kinda of don't ask past that because they know that ninety eight percent of the people out here have not had something made or are working on it or it doesn't necessarily mean you're not successful. It just means that, you know, things take so long to get made and kind of get put forward that it's kind of hard to find the barometer of when, you know, what success is, I guess. But it's funny like talking to family members or talking to, you know, if you go travel anywhere or you go talk to people who aren't necessarily in the industry, everyone's first question is, what have I seen that you've done? And you're like, well, nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it immediately makes you sound like you're a liar. <laughs> like just by default, you are lying out your ass about all of the, your Hollywood success. Do you have a canned follow-up for that question when people ask nah, you? No, I just let them think it. I'm just like, it's fine. <laughs> Before you get in, into the industry or any industry, I think you you don't tend to really imagine the goalposts as clearly as you do when you're inside it. So it's like, right now, I'm really busy. You know, I'm working on five or six projects, usually at a time, which is really exciting. I get to work with a lot of cool filmmakers and and kind of work on the things that I love, which is really great. And if a movie comes out or when a movie comes out with my name on it, that will be the next, you know what I mean? Like that'll be the next thing. But like, I feel like all you have to do is kind of look at, I want to get my next project done. I want to get this next draft in. I want to start looking for the smaller things that are going to validate. And it's just, it's, it's a weird thing about trying to tell like when you're doing better, it's just kind of the way the industry works that it's not necessarily like an A to B thing where you're doing well because your movie came out in summer. It's like, it can be doing well because like I said, you got to work with who you liked or you, you put a project into motion that in five years will pay off. I did a round table at Warner brothers the other day on one of the bigger movies that I can't say, but (laughs) 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 that was really, really fun. I'm 33 and it's interesting going in there and seeing all of the writers around the table who are more successful than me and they're all in their forties. And it's like I'm like, oh, that's great. (laughs) Like I feel like at 33, I feel really worried that I'm not, you know, currently a millionaire and like I don't know riding a jet ski to work or whatever millionaires do. (laughs) Someday I'd like to own the Dallas Cowboys. I bet people laughed at you when you
0: told them that dream. Yeah. Homer, don't give up. They laughed at me the first time I wore jeans
1: with a sport coat.
0: Now they. do it.
1: This career is just so much about longevity more than anything else. It's a marathon and not a sprint. That can be really frustrating, but I think it can also be really exciting because you stop taking your eyes off of, you know, I need this project to succeed and it starts becoming I need to have my fingers in as many things as possible and be pushing as many balls down the field as possible so that, you know, eventually one of them will get in. Because there's way better writers than me. (laughs) There's way better directors and way better filmmakers who have tried to get, you know, films made and couldn't get them made. Like, you look at like all this is not a horror movie, but you look at all that like Spielberg had to get done to get Lincoln made. Kind of crazy. Like how much he could not like Steven Spielberg had trouble getting financing for that movie. And I feel like once you kind of realize that, you're like, okay, this is a lot of this is not in my control. And some of the things that are in your control, and just kind of like try and stay as creatively fulfilled as possible. Because a lot of times the professional, you know, stuff is is out of your hand. I guess. There's filmmakers that I really like. Joss Whedon stuff is pretty easy to go to if you're trying to look at dialogue or look at strong female characters. Just because of uh, it was such a seminal movie. But like I go back to High Tension a lot, just because that's such a big influence on home invasion movies. But I think a lot of it too is is trying to figure out ways to find influences outside of like that basic thing. Like one of the projects I just did, you know, was kind of like a weird mashup of like Jurassic Park and like Men in Black. Like not in tone, but almost in structure. It was kind of looking at how Those two movies approached a lot of the same things differently and like how that built out. You know, and and it was interesting too doing that, comparing like Jurassic Park to Jurassic World, you know, because you look at like what a 15-year age difference does to structurally how we tell movies. Where it's like the dinosaurs don't really get out until after like an hour, hour and twenty minutes in Jurassic Park, and they get out in like fifteen minutes (laughs) in Jurassic World. And I just think that it's interesting seeing the kind of ripple effects of what that does to the narrative and what that does to storytelling and, and not saying anything with the quality of either one but just saying that it's just different now you know I, I used um, From Dust Till Dawn as an example of like a movie you couldn't get made now yeah. like no one would let you do it it's like they'd be so upset that you don't see vampires until <laughs> halfway through that movie. That movie runs so
0: long too that uh, sometimes especially if the audience member walks into it cold right uh, thinking that it's just a, a heist movie and like yeah. a getaway movie and then an hour into it they're like what the hell why are there all these vampires here now?
1: That is the best, That's. I feel like that's the movie I'm always like, have you seen From Death Till Dawn? And if anyone says no, I'm just like, don't look at the internet, let's go watch it really quick. Yeah.
0: Uh, I like to put on Audition, I don't know if you've ever seen that one. And, and I'll tell people that it's a, it's a heartwarming tale of a guy trying to find a date <laughs> and then wait for them to be mad at me for the next yep, week. The bad <laughs> so it sounds like you're in a good place right now as far as the different projects that you're on, your involvement with them as a writer, but have you ever considered maybe changing up your role a little bit, like maybe produce? or maybe even try
1: to direct or... I mean, I, I think I definitely want to direct like at some point. I feel like I don't like doing anything until I'm 150% prepared for it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to be way over prepared for everything. So I feel like for me, like I've been kind of like gearing up in my head to kind of direct and like reading a lot of books on it you remember all the shots that you remember in a weird way but all the best shots are the ones you didn't notice because they were doing their job mm-hmm. you know they they were kind of like getting you in that tone and it's like even simple stuff by like whether you're, you're shooting a character from above or below and whether or not you're uh like how you're doing cuts You know, and cuts, I feel like, are are something that's really interesting in movies nowadays just because, like, the average, you know, length of, uh, between cuts is so little now that it's really interesting because I feel like you see movies that don't do that and have kind of, like, the longer takes. Or I go back and I watch older movies sometimes, like Hitchcock. It's interesting what that tension brings, you know, when you're you're not breaking cuts. And, you know, I I think we're still a little bit in the wake of the Bourne movies and, like, you know, how that kind of fast cuts kind of got influenced on, on cinema, but I think that we're kind of going back to... The, like You guys see Green Room? Yes. Like I'm, a, I'm obsessed with Green Room. Yeah. <laughs> I like think Green Room is like one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. And the way he frames things is so cool in that movie. There are so many moments in that movie where you don't actually see violence that is way worse because you don't see violence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so, so cool. And I think he, he's got a really clear idea of You know, like, the box cutter scene, like, is so unnerving because he doesn't cut away. The camera work is almost slow about it, and I feel like it it just makes it hit in in the right way. Going back to your question about directing, like, I think that I want to be really aware of all of those things. I watch a ton of horror movies, and I I love horror, and and I kind of, you know, will put on whatever horror movie I haven't seen on Netflix when I'm trying to go to bed, because I just really like horror movies. And I feel like horror is one of the genres that is the most inundated with people that don't necessarily understand those things i <laughs> you and I think that you have really, really great people and you have people coming in from other genres, like the guy who did it follows the other genres influence on horror is really cool. But I think you have a lot of people who kind of come into it with, well, they're going to open the medicine cabinet. When they close the medicine cabinet, there'll be something there, you know? And it's like, they have that kind of workman, like we just need to put in the scares where we know they're going to be scares. Right. And it's tough. Audiences are so expecting of those kinds of beats now that I feel like more movies build up to their being, something behind the fridge door or the medicine cabin or whatever and then there's nothing there like that in and of itself is a scare when in reality it's just a meta wink at you knowing that you think that you know that there's going to be something there and I, I don't think, I think that's fine. I think There's plenty of movies that do that kind of stuff well. It's just I think you have to be in a place like Green Room or It Follows or Babadook where you're pushing past what horror's been doing and you're still using the same toolbox you're just doing it in, an, in a more interesting way. Theme is something I've been trying to become a lot more aware of. I mean It Follows has a pretty beach over the head theme, but I think that that's really good. I think that where it comes from is so interesting, and I think Babadook and the way that it deals with you know postpartum depression is really really interesting and grief. And I think that you look at some of the older horror movies, like you look at Nightmare on Elm Street, and the idea of like the inevitability of death—it's really simply just like you go to sleep and you might not wake up again, mm-hmm. which is a real fear lots of people have. <laughs> that's what's always funny to me, and I feel like when I when I talk to people who don't really understand horror, you look at Nightmare on Elm Street as an example. People remember all of the really really scary beats like his his arms getting long and scratching the thing and like like all of that stuff but in reality the scariest part of the entire movie is knowing that you are going to die when you fall asleep and you can't stay awake forever like that's such a human thing that i feel like a lot of movies kind of forget to kind of bake in those themes and bake in that kind of bigger idea and you end up with not to knock sci-fi but it starts feeling like a sci-fi channel movie you know (laughs) And I think sci-fi is doing some really great stuff right now. They try to turn that ship around. Channel Zero is amazing, (laughs) but it's just hard. Horror has always existed in this space where it will kind of make money no matter what. So you can kind of put out Sharknado. You know, you can put out like whatever and it will still kind of return money. Honestly, like, as much as I enjoy like, Paranormal Activity, I think that did a lot of damage because it was a really long time before we saw a more higher budget horror movie. Conjuring was the first movie that had gone back to like 20 million. It was really hard for movies to get made for over two to five million. The thing with
0: Paranormal too, is that because of its runaway success, it unintentionally influenced the genre for years to follow. I mean, we spoke to Radio Silence a few episodes ago yeah. and you know, they expressed some difficulty in trying to get their own found footage movie made simply because producers and the producers thought by extension audiences would expect that a found footage movie has to look like this. This Mm -hmm. is the only way to do it because that was the template that Paranormal established. It's kind of frustrating that a movie by becoming so successful will indirectly change the course of all the other films to come after it for the next few years.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's true in all genres. I just think that it's really hard in horror. The joke about horror is that it's always at 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, yeah. like without fail. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Or apparently, Get Out is 100%. But <laughs> unless you're Get Out, you are at 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just that some people don't like being scared and what scares you is going to be different. It makes it kind of hard to tell. You know, I have horror movies that I love. high Going back to that, like I love high tension, but my wife can't watch past like the first minute, (laughs) and she loves horror movies. It's just not the kind of horror movie she enjoys. You know, I'm not a huge fan of Hostel. Like, you know, I I respect it; it's fine. It does Mm -hmm. Eli Roth does his thing, but I'm just not. It's not really what like I'm drawn to. But again, that that movie made a ton of money. That movie influenced, you know, for better or worse, horror for a long time. And again, it's not even like I, I dislike Paranormal Activity. It's just that as soon as somebody sees a movie that they spend a million dollars on make you know 100 million 200 million whatever that movie made it starts getting to be a thing where it's like oh we don't have to spend any money on horror you know and it's kind of led to the idea that it's really really next to impossible to get creature movies made right now and i love creature movies i you know i've I've written scripts with creatures in them and then had producers go is there a way we can make this a ghost (laughs) i think the way that the financing
0: structure works nowadays is that you either have to make a movie for like under two and a half million or you have to make it for more than 20 million, but anything in between there, they just can't get the numbers to work anymore. This probably has led to the explosion of home invasion movies or low budget found footage movies like paranormal, because you can still practically do those with a small budget like that. But you know, you can't make creature from the black lagoon right. on, on money like that, you know?
1: You know, I think Conjuring helped cause I, you know, Conjuring did a lot of business and I think it was a more kind of throwback to like the seventies mm-hmm. style horror. Um, that wasn't necessarily, you know, like nobody dies in Conjuring, which is crazy to me. Like that movie feels so intense yeah, <laughs> and, so. and nobody dies. But it's hard because I I just feel like horror is such a stab in the dark, you know, like Blair Witch came out last year, which I loved, but just didn't connect for whatever reason. You know, I don't know. That's a strange one.
0: I'm still trying to decipher that, why it didn't land better with audiences. Because I I personally really loved it too. And I thought it was a very smart expansion of the mythology of that world and still paying service to the original, but also stamping out its own ground at the same time. Yeah. I loved it. But, you know, a lot of people walked out of it saying it was just a remake of the original. And it's really... Not, not beyond either. the fact that you know people go into the woods and then scary stuff happens, but well, it's that's like the, the isn't that the premise of the yeah. franchise? Right? It's like,
1: don't you want an updating of the thing that you loved? Like, do you want Book of Shadows? <laughs> no one wants Book of Shadows. I mean, maybe somebody likes Book of Shadows.
0: maybe to circle back for uh, yeah. a moment we were talking about horror and how it feels like sometimes people hop into it because they know that they can make a quick buck and it's true if you look at the top 10 best-grossing movies of the past decades and it starts with paranormal which i think was made on a production budget of 10 grand and then you know they spent like a million on advertising right but then it grossed 100 million. All of them have been horror, so there's a definitely like a business mentality behind it where people know that you can get a huge profit off of a low investment on them. And I think that does attract a, a certain sort of mercenary type of filmmaker, sure. where it's all about jump scares. And you were talking earlier about baking in the themes of making the scare more integral to the story instead of something falling out of a cabinet. I call it the, the cat jumping out of the laundry basket. <laughs> I'm a little surprised when you see movies like Don't Breathe that are really artfully crafted and just ratcheting tension the entire time. And it does well at the same time too that more people don't realize you could make good horror films and they could also make money. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Like, why do you think that people don't make more movies like that?
1: I think that it's, it's honestly just a lot of times just misunderstanding what makes something good. You know, I feel like it's almost like the idea that it's like the invitation does really well. I love the invitation. I think that movie is great. Like you want to argue about whether or not it, it's horror or not. Like I think that it has a horror tone at the very least. It's like people see that movie as an example and they're like, we need more movies. about dinner parties, <laughs> you know, or it's like they say, don't breathe. And they're like, we just really like movies about a blind guy. They kind of sort of get the idea, but they kind of don't get the idea. And they want to emulate the success of the project without really understanding why that project connected. And I think that it's always anybody's guess why a project connects. No one knows why, you know, Titanic connected or like whatever, you know, but I feel like Titanic is an example that, you know, I'm sure there were executives who saw Titanic and they were like, people love ship movies, you know, <laughs> they just want to see ship Ships, and it's it's. I think Ghost Ship came out the year later, right? Which I love Ghost Ship to be fair. <laughs> but, so maybe they're right. Maybe I just love ships. But I think it's hard to say. Having not had something come out yet, I have a friend who did a movie. His script was amazing. He basically sold the script. It was great. One of the first scripts I ever read. Actually, loved it. Thought it was amazing. Like like really excited to see what they did with it. It sold. We we're all excited. All these casting notices came out, and then slowly, slowly, you just stopped hearing anything about it. And then it was released on Netflix. Last year. You watch it and I called him and I was like, I really like the movie, man. He was like, you don't have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun. Like, and it, that's just kind of the thing. It's just like, there's so many moving parts to getting a movie released at all that he was excited that his movie had come out. He was right. like, this is amazing. I don't care. Like, and, and it's kind of weird because that's kind of how it works. Like, people don't really care whether or not a movie's good. They just care if it... Does well. There's plenty of movies that came out that, you know, I don't personally enjoy, but, you know, end up making like 200, 300 million. And that's kind of what ends up setting the marketplace on what the kinds of movies they want to make. And they look at those movies and they're not particularly good. So they start sifting through the rubble, like what they can find to, you know, kind of latch onto to try and emulate that kind of success. Going back to my friend, you know, his script was amazing. They ended up having to, like, relocate the shoot to Eastern Europe from New York. And uh, the director that they wanted, i couldn't do it because of like scheduling conflicts, and he had to drop out. So I got this new guy to do it, come and do it. And then he wanted his own rewrite, but he had another writer that he liked to work with, so he hired that writer and brought him in. You can see the dominoes start to fall as to why maybe this didn't turn out as well as it was going to turn out. And it's not even anybody's fault, really, because you know I feel like everyone's so caught up in their own microcosm of just trying to take care of their own shit that it's hard to step back and have a view of the entire project. James Wan produces, I would say, way more than he. Directed directs. You know, two of the projects I was working on, one was with the idea of him directing and he ended up backing out to produce it because he was doing Aquaman. And then the other one he just was producing from the start. And I think it takes somebody of a James Wan type lightning in a bottle person who's not only had great success, but is really creative and is really good at that creative side of it. I think you need somebody like that who can kind of keep an eye on the whole picture. And I think it ends up coming down to that. There are plenty of directors that I love that did shitty movies. You know, and there's plenty of writers I love that I can say, well, I love the script. I don't know what the movie, but I love the script. I'm sure I will say it about my stuff. I hope that my, when my movies come out, they're amazing. But Been on projects were basically the director and I don't see eye to eye. And we're both fighting as hard as we can to get the version we think is the best version out there. And we just don't line up you know? And, and at that point it's like, either I quit or he quits. (laughs) And if neither of us quit, then you end up having this movie that is kind of trying to be both things and probably not succeeding at that thing. I hope that further down the line that gets evened out because he's a director and I'm a writer and it's in features where directors are gods. We, you know, ended up going with his version and like, he's a good friend of mine. Like I love that guy, but it kind of ended up pushing the the project and Direction. I didn't really, wasn't what I kind of saw the project as being. I think at that point, you kind of just have to hope that his vision is better than your, you know, nearsightedness, <laughs> that you're kind of missing the big picture and, and he's got his finger on it because he's the one, you know, ultimately who's going to be behind the camera and, you know, there on set making sure that that gets pushed forward. But I, again, this is my opinion, but I could look at it and say, I don't think the mov- this movie the way you want to make it is going to be a movie I'm proud of in four or five years or whatever it comes out. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. I hope I go see it and he's changed everything that I've I argued on and it's amazing and I can still take credit for it. Like, that's, <laughs> that's that's the perfect role. That's an example of something that it's like, he's not a bad person. He's not a shitty you know director. He's a good guy. He's smart. And I think we just didn't see eye to eye. And I think you think of the fact that you not only have to see eye to eye with the director and the writer and the producer, but the actors, you know, you start getting in bigger actors and they start having ideas on like what stuff has to be. And it just starts becoming a small miracle that the movie gets made, let alone is good. I feel like the more I work in the industry, the more I forgive movies that have small issues. (laughs) You know, uh, my wife is an actress and anytime I feel bad that, you know, writing's really tough or like whatever. I just remember that I at least don't have to be an actress. <laughs> you know, I don't have to go into a room and have people just be like, I don't like your face.
0: <laughs> so
1: that's a benefit. And I know there's plenty of movies, especially horror movies that just get made because, you know, they're just trying to make a buck or they just want to release something or they own the rights and they don't want to let the rights go or like whatever. But really generally speaking, you look at even your worst movie and you think of like the worst movie you're thinking of. And it's like, they had to go through so much bullshit to get that movie made. <laughs> you know, they had to like so much blood and tears went into them making, you know, I don't know what what Sharknado Seven. I like I keep picking on Sharknado. I don't mean to. <laughs> it just it's impressive to me. Anything ever gets made ever.
0: Are you one of those writers that has like a proper schedule? Do you wake up and then you work from this hour to that hour, or is it really when inspiration hits you? How do you set yourself up when
1: you're writing? I have a set goal that I write. Like I I wake up at like eight and then, you know, I want to write from nine to 12 say, and then I want to watch a movie that I love and I want to go out there and live life. And then that day I probably also, you know, in my mind win the lottery and (laughs) all the other (laughs) things that I've ever wanted. I feel like I have a set goal that I want to work as much as I can and then it's usually like, you know, I end up procrastinating for a week and maybe I get to it, you know, when I get to it. I think that one of the biggest things that I've learned compared to when I was doing an internship and was like writing in my off hours, it gets harder and harder to be inspired by the things that you're supposed to be working on. Stephen King has some really great quotes about the idea that, you know, if you if you wait for inspiration, you're going gonna to be broke for the rest of your life because you're just not going to make it. Because it's hard. I had a script I I finally finished. It got onto the next step last year. And I want to say I did... 23 drafts Ah, and like pretty different drafts. Like not, not like just small tweaks, but like, you know, can this third action now be in a completely different location and can we cut out this character and you have to find ways to be inspired by those things, you know, and still kind of find the nugget of the story. That's going to be interesting and be inspiring to you. But I think you also kind of have to realize that inspiration is this mythical thing that I feel like writers made up so that they didn't have to work when they didn't want to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's, it's like writer's block that like writer's block, I don't think. is really a real thing I think it's a thing that you're either being lazy or you're afraid that what you're going to do is not going to be good mm-hmm. and I say that as somebody who suffers from rhetoric okay <laughs> you know I definitely have moments where you know I'm having a really hard time like pushing through things but I think that a lot of times comes from the idea of what's in your head not lining up with what's going down on paper you know sometimes I get stuck on stuff just because I can't transition from one scene to the next it's like I literally didn't know like how this scene ends and how that bleeds into the next scene and I think that again going back to Stephen King he has he has a really great quote in his book where he talks about having in like the room where you write, you don't want to have your desk be in the center of the room. Like it's like the focal point. You want your desk pushed into a corner where you kind of forget about it because it's for working. You put it in the center of the room and, and then it's like, you're not actually working. You're just sitting at your desk and telling people you're a writer, kind of getting rid of that idea of the romanticism of like, eh, I mean, it happens like I'll sit down sometimes and be inspired and, you know, write for 12 hours or whatever, but it's never when I needed it to happen. <laughs> so I feel like you kind of have to figure out ways to kind of work through that it can be the last thing you want to do you know you want to go play video games or you want to go for a run or my wife knows when I'm in a lot of trouble when I start cleaning because you know <laughs> that's <laughs> the word yeah it's like well you're definitely avoiding something <laughs> because you don't want to clean I mean on the occasions where you are finding yourself struggling to get word onto paper how do you work around that? I think this is very true for not just writing, but every career, but it's getting away from the product that you're putting out and into the process of, of what you enjoy about it. <laughs> Whenever I get really stuck and I'm really like having trouble starting or I'm in trouble, whatever, I just try and remind myself that a hundred page script that's the worst thing I've ever written is closer to where I need to be than not having any script and I'm still on page one and trying to start. Yeah. It's like a joke that my manager for every project I work on tells me it needs to be the best thing I've ever written, like without fail. He's always like, okay, but you need to know this needs to be the best thing I've ever written. Like my career will be in shambles if whatever I write next is not the best I've ever written continually. Uh It can feel like that a lot because you fight so hard for every step that you take that any kind of step backwards kind of feels like the end of the world. And I think when you're doing something creative, you kind of have to try and compartmentalize that as much as you can and push it away so that it's not driving the creativity, whatever... you know lies you have to tell yourself whatever gets you to the point where you can sit down and you can write it out is it's going to be better than whatever it is when you're you know stressed out and you're trying to think of like this has got to be the best thing that I've ever written and I found that once I kind of ease off of that flurry of activity that whatever I've written tends to be really it flows really well and it tends to come from a place of cause I finally let go of that fear of it's not gonna be good and I ended up just focusing on writing it and focusing on the characters and focusing on the stuff that's really fun about it. You know, you end up having something that's that's really strong. <laughs> Say I had a friend in college for video game design, not for writing. That used to always tell everybody that he's like, just have fun with it. Like that was his thing. And it was, he was the most annoying person. Cause you're like, I don't want to have fun with this. I want it to be done. <laughs> like you'd be stressing out cause you have some deadline and you know, an impossible amount of work to get done by the next day. And you'd Just be like, just have fun with it. And I think that that ends up. Though being kind of the key to a lot of that stuff, like, you know, you have to get things done on deadline. You have to get things done for a director's standpoint. But I think that the more you can kind of focus on what you're excited about and what kind of keeps that fire burning is gonna make the end product be closer to where you need to land.
0: I would love like a breakdown of each of the projects that you're doing,
1: but I don't know how much detail you can go into it. Uh, I've got Ink and Bone, which is set up at Dimension. It's basically Stephen King is trapped in his house with everything he's ever written. It's not actually Stephen King, but a Stephen right. King-like writer. It was really inspired by uh, the book House of Leaves. Yeah, um, it was, That was kind of in that vein. Okay, That was a lot of fun. See, then Elimination is set up at Fox Searchlight, and it's an elevated home invasion. So it's kind of like a take, you know, cross between, say, like, The Strangers and, like, Agatha Christie's, and then There Were None. So, okay. Like that kind of vein. I have a project that used to be called, uh, and the next two are kind of more action than horror, mm-hmm. but uh, they're both with James Wan, so I feel like it counts as horror. It's based on actually one of James Wan's comic books that he wrote for Boom Studios called Malignant Man. Uh, and the concept of it was, that of the comic that he wrote, was like basically this guy who has a brain tumor and is dying and then suddenly realizes that it's not actually a brain tumor in his head, it's an alien parasite. And it like gives him superpowers, um, which was a lot of fun because it's, it's very much in the superhero vein, but it's also very much in the James Wan vein and yeah. that it's super gory <laughs> uh, and kind of has like a horror movie kind of feel to it. The other James Wan project, I can't actually say anything about, but it's at Sony and it's great. Okay. So that's all I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. And then I have a, f- another Fox project that I was saying was part of that room with, uh, Adam Wingard and a bunch of other really, really great writers that is, I think I can say it because I think they announced the first one. Um, but we basically had to come up with a franchise based on R.L. Stein's Fear Street books. So, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, and it's really cool. And, and I feel com- confident saying that because even if you've read the Fear Street books, you do not know how awesome the stuff we came up with is. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was just very much kind of like reverse engineering a franchise from the ground up and kind of like coming up with almost like a Final destination E type rule set that you can kind of emulate over movies and movies and I think that's it I could be wrong Is there a piece of advice you
0: wish someone would have given you when you were first starting out?
1: I think saying no is really important too. I feel like that's honestly what I would say to myself. I feel like I'm finally getting to a point in my career where like a project comes up and I'm like, this is what the project should be. If you don't want to do it, then go do it with somebody else. That's fine. There are many, many people who could do the version you want. Like this is the version I think can be really powerful and I want to be involved in that one. And I think when I was starting out, like anybody else, it's like you you spend so much time trying to claw your way up that you don't want to say no to anybody. They will tell you the worst note on the planet and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll make that work, whatever you want. And I think that that can be also kind of damaging. Producers, they just want you to come from a viewpoint, you know, And, and they ultimately want you to do whatever they tell you to do, but they want you to articulate why things won't work. They want you to articulate why something does work or why something's better. And they'll always come around to what you're talking about as long as you kind of stick with it. I've had very few projects where it was like drag out fights over whatever you know honestly working in the in the the fox room i was working with this guy named Kyle Killen who did uh did that show awake the jason isaac's show
0: oh okay yeah great guy
1: really really hard worker he kind of show ran our room and he's writing fear street like the first movie and seeing how he dealt with notes I felt was really great because he kind of would always take their notes and would always hear what they were saying and always have a discussion with them back even if he was saying that he wasn't gonna do what they're gonna do. (laughs) If they told him to just do it he would do it but he was very open and honest and it's not about saying no because you don't like something it's about saying no and then giving all of the reasons why you already tried that or why you already thought of it and why it possibly might not work and then letting them go you know what you're right and it being like a team communal thing as opposed to you just digging your heels in the sand and you know being difficult to work with. That's a really really hard skill and I think I'm better at it. I'm sure I could be better at everything. And I think that that's probably what took me the longest to learn. What advice would you give to listeners who are trying to break into the field? It's hard. I think that the benefit of like trying to break in as a writer is that you can always write more than directing and definitely more than acting. You can kind of always do the thing that you're trying to do. So I think at that point, it's just about doing things you're passionate about. It's not about following the industry and trying to write the next paranormal activity. It's coming at it from your own viewpoint and trying to figure out why your way in is fresh and exciting. I feel like I have things to offer from my experiences and things to offer from just my upbringing that like I can put in that other people might not. And I think kind of trying to find those things and then doing things that you feel really passionate about, you're always is going to end up with something that I think people will engage with more than, you know, you're just trying to, like I said, you know, write something that's similar to The Conjuring. <laughs> because again, Ink and Bone, I wrote because I was waiting for somebody, to, you know, back to with notes. And that project ended up not selling <laughs> and Ink and Bone sold immediately because I feel like it was a project that I was excited about. It was an idea I was excited about. And it was something that I didn't worry about notes on. Wrote it and I was like, this is awesome. I'm excited about it. And, you know, other people kind of think saw that passion. I think that when you're starting out, that's kind of you've got. Like, I think if you're directing, especially, like I feel like the movie Tangerine that came out that uh, the guy filmed on his iPhone, we just have the technology and and it's so easy to get access to the stuff that you can kind of make whatever you need to make. Like, I think that it's putting yourself out there and making sure you're creating stuff you're excited about. And I think it's doing your homework as far as, you know, living a life that's, you know, worth telling stories about. And I think it's really putting the work in to make sure that, you know, you're coming at things from from a filmmaking perspective that's not lazy and it's not just copying what other people are doing. They have a thing like a list that's passed around on the internet. That's like all the things that you see a million times in movies, and I'm guilty of a ton of them. You know, it's like the it wakes up and the guy's hand hits the alarm clock. Just those things. Opening shot of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, it's just, and and they're there for really specific reasons. But I think that it's, it's being aware of those things and kind of pushing past, just emulating what you like and pushing into being inspired by what you like to create new things. that I think, you know, will really get you noticed. It's just, it's tough to do what everyone else is doing better than them. So I think figuring out a way to be excited by something that's kind of like outside the box a little bit. Like if you're stoked about, you know, your killer goldfish movie, then make your killer goldfish movie, <laughs> you know, cause it's just going to be interesting. It's going to be more interesting than you just trying to like follow somebody else. What scares you the most? What scares me the most? This is actually a really bummer answer, so I'm sorry. But I feel like everything I write is about death, but in the losing people you loved kind of way. Like, I feel like every single script I write, is just about the fact that I don't feel like I could ever really handle if, like, my wife died or anybody else died. So it's like every single character in my scripts, it's like, just lost a son or a daughter or a wife or a mom or dad. (laughs) Like, that's just, without fail, that's what it's kind of about. Just the idea of that kind of void i have a friend of mine who his father passed away really recently and it's it's so kind of hard and it's kind of a thing that like you can't really escape and you can't really be prepared for and you can't really do anything about and i think that ultimately in a weird way it's like why i really love horror because i think that that's kind of what the best horror is about you know it's like it's why i respond so much to green room in a weird way because it's the inevitability of of whatever the thing is. Like, I talk a lot about the idea that there's there's a big difference between scary movies and horror movies. You know, Friday the 13th is a scary movie, and it's cool and it's fun, and but you're you're kind of wanting them to die. <laughs> you're kind of like, you know, I, I'm, I can't wait till Jason smashes that guy into the tree and it leaves a happy face. But then at the same time, it's like, there's horror movies like, you know, Green Room, Parts of Jaws, or, you know, The Shining, or and honestly, I think that's what Eli Roth kind of capitalizes on a lot. And it's the idea that it's like, you see that movie, and it, just using Green Room as an example, you see green room and you just would give anything for all of them to make it out fine. (laughs) And I've always kind of operated under the idea that horror is bad things happening to good people. And I think that that comes from those really real emotions. I think that's where you're going to feel that.
0: You mentioned that your dad was an actor and that you grew up on sets. Do you have any strong memories about that? Did that Influence you perhaps in wanting to pursue storytelling.
1: Yeah, I think so I mean, I think I just remember watching, you know, my dad and I watched tons and tons and tons of movies I think I really got baked into me the idea of storytelling and the idea of kind of how storytelling works And I think that almost to a negative degree, like I've never gone to film school I've never done anything really had any instruction on like how to be a good storyteller outside of that I'm obsessed with movies and I'm obsessed with storytelling and I feel like you know, just in taking that for the last 33 years has kind of by osmosis, I have a relatively good sense of like when things are working and how you need to build things and how you need to kind of structure that stuff. You know, I, I think being on set. I remember it as good times, you know, my dad's a really passionate person. And I think he was really, you know, I remember my dad staying up till like 6 AM before he would have auditions to like memorize lines and get into character and really commit to that craft. So I feel like in a sense, even though we're in the same industry, it was more seeing his commitment to doing a good job. You know, I remember being up on set with him when he'd be filming till three, four or 5 AM after doing it for 12 hours and hanging out in his trailer. Well, 200 people were outside, like setting up lights, and trying to make uh, it looked like it's snowing in the middle of downtown LA, or like whatever they were doing. That all those people, as tired as they were, all felt passionate and all felt committed to doing the best job professionally that they can. And I feel like that just kind of permeates throughout everybody who works in the industry on some level. Like there's not really a lot of people in the industry who don't want to do it. (laughs) You know, it's all people who had to move here from crazy distances to try and make it. And I think that that really starts coming out. I mean, even people who are grips or who are PAs or who are whatever, they're not doing that because it was the easy path. And I think that that's really powerful. And I think that's something that I try and remind myself of when I'm complaining that I don't want to go work on a stupid outline or I don't want to go work on something that You know, I'd rather be playing Dishonored too. I think that I try and remind myself of that, that this is something I'm passionate about. and This is something that a lot of people would would be killing to do. And and ultimately, when I get down into it, you know, I I wouldn't want to do anything else. I think it's the idea that, you know, it's like I said, it's 5 a.m. and you're in the middle of some freezing parking lot and we're out in the middle of the woods or you're in one of those weird rain machines where it makes it look like it's raining. And everyone there is miserable and wouldn't rather be anywhere else. And I think that's kind of a really cool attitude to take away from that you know what that
0: noise means it's time for the lightning round there are no wrong answers just fast answers just wait (laughs) what horror film do you always recommend to people who say they're not into the genre but want to check it out i mean i would say the thing and then
1: i'm usually wrong and they end up not liking it gotta be fucking kidding (laughs) But that's my favorite, so.
0: What's the strangest thing you've ever done to get out of writer's block?
1: I'll work on, like, building characters backwards. So, like, what that person ate for breakfast that day. Or start talking about, like, who broke that character's heart back in high school. I feel like those kind of things can tend to, like, jar it loose a little bit in a way that, even if it doesn't make it into the script, you end up kind of having a feel for that character a little better that can kind of help. You
0: mentioned earlier that you're looking forward to being a... Writer millionaire, what's the
1: first eccentric millionaire purchase that you're going to make? I want a smart house like Bill Gates. That's number one. I've been like researching that for for a script I want to write. He he has he gives when you go to Bill Gates' house, you get a badge that you wear. That when you walk through the house, your music will follow you, and every yeah. room you walk into will go to the temperature that you have set. It's
0: kind of like a Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah it's it's great.
0: So yeah that I want to have an oh shit button, right? Yeah. That dispenses a hand carved crystal glass and will pour a fine brandy into it nice. so that I can take a swig of it and then when my butler says something that upsets me I will throw it into the fireplace so right. that it explode into flames. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never drink the brandy otherwise. It's explicitly for throwing into That's the fireplace. Nice. I like it. <laughs> Which final girl would you have wanted to take the prom? Oh, man.
1: I mean, I feel like I was obsessed with Scream growing up, so I feel like I'd pick up Campbell and Scream. Nice. I, I, like, literally watched that movie every night, and it <laughs> fucked me up. <laughs> but, but I did.
0: What horror franchise do you think you'd have the best chance of surviving?
1: Oh, man, none of them. I mean, <laughs> I've got no hope. I mean, I feel like if you're talking about, like, you're putting me at the age-appropriate level, like I don't do drugs, and I definitely like wasn't scoring with lots of chicks. So I feel like uh, Friday the Thirteenth I would have been cool. I would have like pulled up at the end in the truck and been like, "What's going on, everybody?" And like everyone's dead.
0: I think the easiest one would be Jaws because they'd be like, "There's a shark in the water." That's It'd good. be like, "Okay, cool. I'm going home." Let me know when the credits roll. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite Starship Captain:
1: Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly.
0: Nice. I am to misbehave. What's the last thing you binge watched?
1: I actually just watched The Exorcist, the uh, oh, TV yeah. show, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's really, I great. really, really dug it. What horror trope drives you nuts? It's the things being behind the uh, medicine cabinet or, or fridge. The amount of times I feel like movies feel like they really, really need to cram mm-hmm. that in there, I think is is pretty big. And I think honestly that going going deeper than that, I don't understand why we have this desire to always have the significant other be an asshole mm-hmm. whenever the person comes to them and is like. Some Somebody just stabbed me in the parking lot wearing a hockey mask and they're like, okay, you had an episode, just sit down. And like, it's just feels like a really artificial way to draw the plot out. Do you ever see Fright Night, the remake? There's a really funny part in that movie where the mom just believes him (laughs) Uh (laughs) and it feels so refreshing (laughs) Yeah, because you're just like, oh, that's great. You get to a point where it's like the husband who's like madly in love with the wife won't believe the wife. I don't know. I think my wife needs to be locked into a sane asylum for seeing ghosts. That is overplayed. It's not only more exciting for me to see a movie where everyone just kind of generally believes each other and likes each other, but I think it it puts you into a more interesting, creative place in trying to think of boxes you have to get out of yeah. when everyone's cooperating. Yeah, I, I
0: think I nearly broke into applause in Insidious when she's like, we need to move out of this house, it's haunted, and the husband goes, okay, let's do it then. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And that forces you to not have to, like you were saying, like have to rely on cheap scares or jump tactics or anything like that. But your your plot has to be smart enough that it can still work even when people act reasonably. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that frustrates me in horror films is that people act dumb because I, I honestly think a lot of the times it's because the writer doesn't have a way of the situation to escalate unless somebody acts
1: dumb. Yeah, one of my favorite movies is uh, The Collector. The concept of that movie is a thief breaks into a house where basically like a saw-like Uh, serial killer is like torturing the family and what's great about that movie and it really influenced me a lot is the main character is so much better than I would ever be in that situation (laughs) like he's literally like it's like you dropped an action movie character into a horror movie and then you just watched him deal with it (laughs) and it's so much more interesting to watch you know because it's like he's avoiding traps and he's like you know there's a moment where he like walks into this room and he knows the killer's coming and he like covers up everything he did so that like the killer won't know he's there but it's Mm -hmm. like even the stuff that you wouldn't even thought of. And I think that that's just so much more interesting. And I feel like that that's kind of influenced me a lot in my writing and the idea that I just want to watch people smarter than me survive horror movies, not people stupider than me survive horror movies. I know we're getting off topic on this lightning round, but the one that bothers me
0: the most, as far as, you know, the killers behind the person, they just didn't notice it is in the Texas Chainsaw remake. She Gets to the car, she's about to escape, and then she adjusts the rear view mirror, and then she realizes that Leatherface is in the back seat with a chainsaw running, and then he runs it through the seat, right? And I'm like, okay, that guy is six feet tall, 275 pounds. He's also got a running chainsaw inside of a closed car. You didn't hear it, you didn't smell it, you didn't see him while you're running up to the car. I'm like, I called so much
1: bullshit on that. Like I know that they have a lot of work. With there, but like <laughs> Leatherface specifically has a magical chainsaw because you only hear it when he is in frame. <laughs> like it's so it's, true. It's amazing. Like it's, it's, it's like, I get it.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah. If people want more information about you and to keep up to date with, you know, your projects as you're developing, is there somewhere that they should go to follow you? Uh, Google, I guess.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Set up a Google alert. Yeah. Google alert for me. That's (laughs) not creepy at all. All
0: right. Uh, Fans can follow us. Uh, We are on Facebook at the point of a knife, and you can also follow us on Twitter. We are at point of a knife. Thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank our guest Zach For chatting with us Be sure to keep an eye out for his projects Now, they're all currently in various stages of development But chances are very good You'll be seeing his name on screen soon And when you do, tell everyone you heard him here first At the Point of a Knife Was created and hosted by me, Eric Navaretti And produced by Rene Amador At the Point of a Knife is an Automaton Creative production For more of our work, visit our new site AutomatonCreative.com Logo and title design by Jonathan B. Perez For more of his work check out jonathanbperez.com Be sure to follow the show on Facebook and subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher and while you're at it, help more people find the show by sharing with friends and leaving us a review. It really helps.